0: I'm Marty West, Editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Chester Finn, President Emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Checker is the author of the new article, Leadership Makes a Difference, Lamar Alexander in K-12 Education, which will appear in the spring issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Checker, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure.
0: Let me start out by telling listeners that we're recording this episode on the eve of the 2020 election and therefore blissfully unaware of what will have happened in national politics by the time it airs. So we're going to focus on one development that is certain, and that's Lamar Alexander's impending retirement after three full terms in the U.S. Senate. And we will use that as an excuse to look back at a half-century career that has left a clear mark on American K-12 education. As we do that, we should also acknowledge that neither of us is an entirely impartial observer of Lamar's career. You, Checker, worked with and for him at various points in your career, and I think would consider him a friend, which is part of what put you in such a great position to write this article. I worked for him much more briefly in 2013 and 14, but consider him, if not exactly a mentor or role model whose leadership I was able to observe up close. So with that as context for the conversation, I wonder if you could start out by giving us a sense of the different roles through which Lamar has influenced American education. I think many listeners, especially younger ones, will know him primarily as the Republican senator from Tennessee who presided over the passage of the Every Student Succeeds Act, but that only scratches the surface.
1: Well, that's right. And I should say first that uh, talking to you about Lamar on Election Day, um, mixed feelings about the election for many reasons, but one of them is that Lamar Alexander is not running for re-election. At age 80, he actually will retire at the end of this Congress after, as you said, three full terms as the senior senator from Tennessee and chairman um, in recent years of the, of the HELP Committee, the, uh, essentially the Senate Education Committee. Before he got to the Senate, uh, Lamar was the U.S. Secretary of Education for, uh, for Bush 41. Uh, he was president of the University of Tennessee, uh, his main venture into higher education. Uh, he was governor of Tennessee for two full terms. Uh, starting in the late 1970s, and um, a major force for education reform, not just in Tennessee, uh, but um, across the states, because among other things, he chaired the National Governors Association and got them focused on education. Uh, He chaired the Southern Regional Education Board and got them focused on education. Uh, He chaired what most of us refer to as the Alexander James Commission, uh during the reagan years which uh rebooted the national assessment of educational progress uh gave birth to the national assessment sorry national assessment governing board and um gave birth to state by state nape as it which has become a pretty significant factor uh in american education um and uh served on umpteen other organizations and 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 roles including sort of subsets of the ones i've just talked about uh, and in his private life um as a lawyer author of multiple books father of four kids um a piano player um and um a, a wonderful human being um, not one of these sort of majestic senators whom everybody has to bow and scrape in front of but as you probably remember from your own time uh with his staff Uh, Basically, everybody calls him Lamar, and he's a genuinely
0: nice human being. And as you say, his career was never explicitly focused on education, except perhaps in his time as the U.S. Secretary of Education. But he was never far from it and clearly made it a priority in leadership roles with broader responsibility. You suggest in the article that this lifelong interest in education grew naturally out of the example his family provided growing up. How so?
1: Well, Lamar started in a small town in East Tennessee. Um, His uh, father was uh, a a school principal uh, and then a school board member. Uh, His mother ran a preschool and kindergarten program, a private one. There was no such thing as a public uh, pre-K in those days or or Head Start. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the uh, um, early 40s. And uh, um, Lamar's mother had nowhere else to put him, as he recalls it, and therefore placed him in her preschool for about five years um, until he was ready to go to the public schools of uh, of Maryville, Tennessee. Uh, He went through school there, and then to Vanderbilt, and then to law school at NYU, and then a clerkship at at the circuit court level. and um, ended up finding, I met him in the White House in 1969 when we were both working in the uh, in the early Nixon White House, different parts of the White House, but uh, both part of the under 30 crowd of staffers there. Um, and uh, um, he says, uh, I think correctly, that he learned the value of a good education uh, from having one, from getting one, uh, from having one placed upon him. That led him to begin to appreciate not only the value of education for individuals but also for the society. Uh, his, um, his his first sort of discovery upon becoming governor of Tennessee, which at the time I think had the fourth lowest family income in the country, uh, His uh, after he tried to figure out why is that, um, he pretty quickly came to the conclusion that it's because Tennessee kids weren't learning enough in school to be competitive for good jobs uh, of the kind that would make them, their families and their state more prosperous. And uh, his mantra as governor, uh, he must have said it a million times in speeches, um, efforts to get his reforms passed was better, better schools mean better jobs for Tennesseans and ultimately greater prosperity. Uh, for the state and for all those families. So this was a a very big deal from a very early start for him, even though, as you said, he he trained to be a lawyer and that was his profession.
0: I have to say that uh, in my two years working for him, I must have written that anecdote about five years in preschool into the opening remarks that he delivered at dozens of congressional hearings dealing with early childhood education. So I enjoy hearing you tell the story uh, now. So it was during this stretch, though, in his first term as governor of Tennessee in the late 1970s, that you and he began working together more closely. How did that come about, and what did that work look like?
1: Yeah, we we met, as I said, in the in the Nixon White House in '69, and overlapped there, and then we both sort of went off in different directions. Um, but in 19. Uh, 19- I'm skipping obviously a decade here, um, my wife and I found ourselves moving from Washington to Nashville, Tennessee to join the faculty at Vanderbilt, of all places, uh, and I, I sent Governor Alexander a note saying, hey, this is me from, the, from old times. Uh, we're coming to Nashville, and he sent back a note saying, well, when you get here, please get in touch. We're working on education, and I know that's what you're interested in. So we turn up in Nashville in 81, and he is uh, uh, in the uh, sort of mid-level, mid-stage of a major education reform effort. He basically uh, laid his first set of proposals on the legislature during his first term, which mostly involved basic skills and trying to get uh, uh, Tennesseans uh, a little higher up in reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, but then he got reelected, um, and uh, in in '82, uh, pretty much around the time I was getting there, and that emboldened him with bipartisan support because he's been bipartisan for as long as I've known him, while also being partisan. We can talk about that uh, that distinction if you like. But he really has pulled off being both, um, with the support or encouragement of Democratic leaders in the legislature. Uh, Lamar, in his second term, embarked on a really ambitious uh, education reform plan for the state, um, with with a dozen moving parts. Uh, but the most contentious of them was a pioneering effort to install a career ladder for teachers, or as Lamar would put it, pay great teachers more for pay for teaching well, um, and. Um, This, of course, produced a firestorm because um, the teachers' unions wanted no part of it, but they wanted everything else in the reform package, uh, including the additional sales tax dollars uh, that would uh, fund schools. Uh, And so battle royal ensued, many anecdotes and episodes. But anyway, I'm sitting in my uh, little office at the Vanderbilt Institute for Public Policy Studies, um, scribbling away stuff for the governor, um, as well as a few things for myself. Uh, and um, and periodically meeting with him and his brain trust about the design of what, what became called the Better Schools Program. Uh, and even uh, uh, going to dinner a couple times at the governor's mansion and getting on airplanes with him a couple times as part of uh, uh, promoting the Better Schools Plan, uh, including a sort of memorable trip from Nashville to Washington, D.C., because he wanted to meet with Al Shanker, then head of the American Federation of Teachers. Shanker was willing to meet with him because while well, the NEA and its, and its Tennessee affiliate uh, wanted no part of the career ladder for teachers, um, Shanker, who was quite an education reformer in his own way, um, was open to the idea that uh, great teachers should get paid more. So he and Lamar got together, and that led to a whole bunch of subsequent episodes.
0: And he ultimately invited Governor Alexander to give a speech to the AFT convention, as I understand it.
1: Yes, sir. In in Los Angeles, I went. I went with Lamar to that too. Uh, so you know, thousands of AFT delegates uh, in the middle of summer uh, when school's not in session, uh, meeting in a giant convention hotel in Los Angeles. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but Lamar recalled that. Uh, when he told his mother the former preschool teacher where he was going uh, she said be careful son um, it sounded as if he was going into enemy territory uh, but he ended up getting a standing ovation from the delegates to the AFT convention uh, and, um, and he got um, uh, help in various ways um, from Shanker Uh, in encouraging the development of something that the legislature ultimately passed, albeit with with some amendments and some modifications, which was, I'm pretty sure, the country's first uh, merit pay program uh, at at a state level uh, for teachers. Um, He was in a kind of competition with uh, Florida Governor Bob Graham, um, a Democrat who was trying to do the same thing in Florida at the same time. But we got to remember, that in those days, these guys cooperated with each other. They helped each other. They, they, they exchanged notes. They encouraged each other. Uh, they egged each other on. Uh, Lamar recalls some, one point where Graham um, actually stopped in Nashville uh, to encourage a senior Tennessee Democrat to vote for Lamar's proposal. Uh, it's actually hard these days to think of that sort of thing happening, but it really did.
0: And speaking of that first merit pay plan in the nation, in the early days of Education Next, we ran a very interesting research study that used the data from the Project Star experiment to demonstrate that the program really did succeed in identifying those teachers who were more effective at supporting student learning. Of course, over time, after Governor Alexander left office, though, the program was watered down in innumerable ways and ended up amounting to sort of a mass raise for all teachers uh, without merit being part of it, Uh, which sort of illustrates how challenging it is to design and uh, sustain these types of programs.
1: I I sometimes talk about uh, public education as a giant rubber band that uh, wants to snap back to its previous shape as soon as the tension is released. Uh, And um, as soon as Lamar left office, uh, basically they started chipping away. Uh, at the master teacher program, as it was called. And uh, I kept the money, of course, but uh, sort of did away with the merit part. Exception being that the, um, the program also prompted um, a University of Tennessee professor of, I think agriculture named Bill Sanders uh, to start doing what became value added analysis. We now call it growth analysis of student learning in order to Figure out which teachers were more effective. In other words, which teachers, based on essentially test scores, were creating <clears throat> greater achievement growth in their students. And this has been a extremely important line of line of line of work um, and line of uh, um, accountability analysis um, for schools. It's a major part of ESSA right now in most states. Is uh, you know how much growth occurred.
0: Now, also shortly after. Governor Alexander left office in Tennessee. I believe he was term limited out. He had the opportunity to take up leadership of the commission that you mentioned earlier, reviewing the state of the national assessment of educational progress. Yes. So, what exactly was the Alexander James Commission, and why was it so important to Napes development?
1: Well, that's its own long story. I'll give a short version of it. Um, by the mid '80s. Uh, there was a lot of discontent in the country, especially among governors, about the uh, inadequacy of achievement data for knowing how your state is doing, and knowing how your state is doing compared to the country, knowing how your state is doing compared to another state. Uh, remember, a nation at risk had come along in 1983. Um, governors apparently were all invited to uh, Bunkport uh, to meet with uh, uh, the Vice President Bush at that point to talk about how they were going to deal with the, uh, the need to do something about education and they all complained that they didn't have any good data and the only thing available to them was a document that uh, Secretary um, Ted Bell was putting out at the Department of Education which became known as the wall chart uh, which attempted to give state-by-state information but really depended on things like SAT scores which are not valid representations of of how the state is doing, and any case only in in high school. So there was a lot of interest in getting better data, but NAEP National Assessment had been forbidden from its origins in the late 60s, forbidden from reporting at less than the national level or regional level. Uh, It wasn't allowed to give state data. Meanwhile, however, the SREB, partly led by Lamar, had started to experiment with whether they could use NAEP data, Uh, at the state level. Uh, Anyway, um, at this point, Bill Bennett is Secretary of Education. and I'm Assistant Secretary for Research and Stuff, uh, which included the the NAEP portfolio. And we think, Bennett thinks, it's time to see whether NAEP could be um, updated after two decades uh, to meet some of this need for uh, state data. So this is the Reagan administration. Democrats run the Congress. Uh, it's pretty clear that for anything like that to happen, there's got to be bipartisan support, again, bipartisan, um, to how to get there. Well, appoint a commission, a uh, study group, I think it was called, um, and get a lot of people, VIPs to be on it, and then get a report saying, here's how NAEP should be changed. Well, that's what happened. And we persuaded, Bennett and I, I think it's fair to say, persuaded Lavar in his last year as governor um, to take the chairmanship of this commission, which ended up with a lot of very interesting people on it, including the first lady of Arkansas, Hillary Rodham Clinton um, at the time. And, um, and Lamar, who was heading for a sabbatical actually with his family in Australia, basically said he would share it if somebody else would do the hard work. And uh, we got the uh, brand newly retired uh, president of the Spencer Foundation, former Stanford Ed School Dean, Tom James, Uh, to be vice chairman and study director, I think we called him, and to kind of orchestrate the work of the commission. The commission met uh, three, four, or five times, uh, commissioned a bunch of papers, got a lot of staff work, um, and in about a year, came back with a um, big, bold proposal for for changing NAEP, um, the most important part of which, the two most important parts of which, were uh, state-by-state should be allowed and um, an independent governing board which we now know as NAGBI, should be created so that NAEP would no longer basically just be a creature of the federal government run by the National Center for Education Statistics and its contractors, but would be essentially a quasi-independent body, a body which I have to tell your listeners you are now a member of, and I was once a member of. Um, And uh, Anyway, the Reagan administration and Senator Edward M. Kennedy, I'm going to say bipartisan once more, um, managed to agree that this should happen. And in legislation in 1988, it did happen. I mean, there's a lot of pulling and shoving along the way, but uh, it did happen. And uh, uh, NAEP was transformed into something that's become, I think, an indispensable measuring rod, which it had not been previously, uh, for for so many things, for state performance, for growth, for achievement gaps, uh, for um, auditing state performance under ESSA, where they're measuring themselves, but who's going to be the external evaluator of whether the measurements that the state is using are, are legitimate, are fair, are rigorous. Anyway, that's what happened.
0: And that brings us fast forwarding only just a little bit up to his relatively short stint as United States Secretary of Education. He was confirmed to that role in late 1990 and served through the end of George Herbert Walker Bush's term in January 1993. What's most notable about his tenure as Education Secretary?
1: Right, Bush was you know, had the big summit in Charlottesville in 1989. He said he wanted to be the first education president, that was his phrase for himself, and he wasn't getting any traction from his then Secretary of Education, uh, Laura Cavazos, who's desperate to reboot uh, that, and um, asked his friend and and, and uh, uh, colleague, Lamar Alexander, if he would take the chair, the, the uh, secretary's office chair. And, um, Lamar agreed. I think it was uh, Christmas of 90 when uh, he agreed to take this on. Uh, I got confirmed in 91, as you said. Um, And um, his assignment from Bush 41 was to come up with a plan to advance the country toward these ambitious national education goals that the governors and the president had set in Charlottesville, and then had been confirmed uh, later by the by the National Governors Association, President President's State of the Union address in 1990 and so forth. Um, so Lamar was tasked, um, and this started before he got confirmed, with coming up with a plan for moving the country forward. And uh, he called it America 2000. Uh, it, uh, it morphed under Bill Clinton into goals 2000 um, and into congressional legislation by that name uh, in, I think, 1994. Uh, but uh, Lamar's plan, which I helped with, uh, was an effort to not make the federal government do the work, but to get the federal government to provide the leadership that would cause states and communities and schools to do the work of um, essentially kickstarting their educational uh, gains and performance. There are a bunch of moving parts. Some involve standards and testing, some involve new school models, new school designs, some involved um, communities around the country, sort of, sort of drinking the Kool-Aid of education reform and getting themselves motivated to uh, to make a difference, uh, getting getting states on board uh, to get serious about this. So it was an interesting straddle. I think it's fair to say by Lamar uh, between his um, his his strong view that education is a bottom-up thing that communities and states have to do for themselves, and his parallel view. Uh, that national leadership uh, can motivate change and encourage change and maybe even nudge change uh, without uh, running the schools. Um, as as you know, he later became quite uh, vocal on the topic of let's not have a national school board. Um, he really did believe and does believe that education is a local and state thing, and that unless a community wants better schools, in the end, it's not going to get them. Um, but it doesn't have to wait for the establishment in that community school system to take the lead in getting to better schools. They can be, It can be pushed and pulled from, from other places, including um, other community leaders, state leaders, and national leaders.
0: And of course, some observers see in that America 2000 plan that you just described, the beginning of a process that ended up with exactly the situation that, as senator, Lamar ended up being so critical of, and as a practical matter, it's fairly easy to draw that line in uh, how policies developed, but you're suggesting that it is possible to draw a principal distinction between what Lamar was trying to do and have President Bush do as education secretary and the strategy of federal influence we saw under the Obama administration.
1: Well, it's very easy to draw that line uh, in on paper um, and in the air, uh, and Lamar does a very effective job of describing that line. And he is absolutely convinced that, uh, uh, beginning under Bush forty-three, and certainly continuing under under Obama, that the country crossed the line uh, in a bad way, in a in a, in a harmful way. Um, but I will admit, and, and, and you know this from your own time in Washington, it's, it's hard as a practical matter to get the government, executive branch, but especially the Congress, to respect that line. Um, there are so many temptations to cross it. Uh, some of them are equity temptations. Uh, why should we let schools be better in one place than in another place? Um, some of them are uh, uh, sort of haste, uh, urgency, um, uh, temptations? Why should we wait when we can make it happen? Uh, why should we let it be so uneven uh, when when it's a national problem we're trying to solve? So there's a lot of temptation. It's very hard to restrain uh, either the executive branch or the legislative branch from crossing the line. But there is a line. It's important. I think it's an important one. It's very important to Lamar.
0: And that brings us all the way back to his time in the U.S. Senate. You write about a key moment in 2011, midway through his second term, when Lamar voluntarily exited a leadership role within the Senate Republican Caucus to focus his energies instead on committee service and in particular in his role on the Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. Instead of waiting to become an admiral, you write, Lamar chose to captain a battleship. Help listeners understand that decision and just how unusual it was
1: yeah um lamar really likes to get stuff done um he he, he he's fond of, of quoting an epigram that i think he picked up from lbj's speechwriters biography of lbj something like that um about uh, sort of sort of pick pick what needs to be done and then persuade half the country to do it uh words to that effect um, he really likes to get stuff done, not just orate, and not just um, position himself, and not just uh, criticize the other guy. Uh, and that's been true since he was governor, and it, it's remained true in the Senate. Uh, it's very old-fashioned in in 2020, um, especially as sitting here on, on a highly contested election day. Um, it's very unfashionable to think to to even remember that 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 era. Um, Lamar was seeing the Congress by 2011 polarizing and less getting done and uh, more acrimony and animosity. And though he could have stayed in the leadership and risen to you know, whip maybe even majority leader one day, um, and which would be Senate leader um, when the Republicans are in charge. Uh, he basically said he'd rather um, get stuff done. And uh, he would do that by stepping out of the leadership and taking on a committee uh, in a big way, several committees, but became chairman of the health committee. Um, And then proceeded to basically do what he said he wanted to do, uh, which was to actually legislate. Dozens and dozens of bills coming out of that committee got enacted into law Uh, in the K-12 space. The best known of them is ESSA in 2015. Uh, Not quite so well known, but almost as important was the Perkins Act, the vocational education um, uh, law that uh, governs federal involvement there. And as we speak, he is still trying to make progress on the Higher Education Act, uh, which I doubt he'll succeed with uh, before the end of the Congress, but uh, he's hoping he can get a few pieces of it still passed in a lame duck session. Um, The goal here, the point here is that on these key legislative He hasn't just slammed through the legislation on a party line vote with all the Republicans voting aye and all the Democrats voting nay. Um, He actually has worked with the Democrats, especially with the ranking minority member Patty Murray, the Senator from Washington State, to uh, forge compromises, uh, classic compromises that leaves nobody completely satisfied, um, leaves everybody sort of equally dissatisfied. Uh, but yeah, able to agree that let's do this and this much and not more, and let's stop ourselves from doing the things that we're going to kill each other over. Uh, and uh, he, he's pulled it off. Um, and uh, it's another reason to sort of hate to see him leave Congress because there aren't many like him left.
0: So, your bottom line assessment in the article, which I think few listeners will have any doubt about after taking in this conversation is that no one living today has had more far-reaching influence on American k-12 education which brings me to my closing question which is to the extent that he was so influential uh don't we have to as observers to some extent hold him responsible if not entirely but in part for the disappointing track record of American education in addressing some of the problems it has faced uh, all the way back to a nation at risk and before it. How do we reconcile his influence, uh, our confidence in favorable assessment in his leadership, and the largely mediocre track record I think many of us see when we look at uh, reform during this era?
1: Well, it's certainly a, a fair question, a fair point, but I don't think it's a, a difficult question. Um, if you're trying to move a mountain, uh, and you have only a bulldozer, um, you can't move it very far, uh, no matter how uh, conscientiously uh, you drive that bulldozer, or from how many directions you go out the mountain. It's a great big mountain, and there's a lot of resistance to change in American education. There's a lot of tendency to snap back, and there's a lot of tend after you make a change, not keep it. There's a lot of tendency to uh, um, sort of in federal policy, almost pendulum-like. Uh, let's let's go from uh, forcing the states to not forcing the states. Let's go from states' rights to uh, federal control. There's a pendulum effect. Um, we're talking about a very big, very decentralized, but very complicated enterprise that is full of people who are either defending their interests or are complacent about the schools their own kids go to. So this one isn't easy to, isn't easy to change. Lamar would admit that uh, the gains have been uh, largely unsatisfactory. He would also point to a bunch of things that have gotten better. Um, and a bunch of recognitions, um, I mean, just, we haven't even talked about this, but he would point to the great gains of school choice during his time in this field, uh, as something that he thinks made a material difference for very many people, and that uh, there was basically none of it when he became governor of Tennessee. Um, So uh, there are gains, there's not enough gains. And you know that, I know that. He knows that, he admits that. He's not expecting to be crowned uh, emperor of education reform. Um, I think uh, what you can say is that he moved it from as many directions about as far as it could be moved during his time.
0: My guest today has been Checker Finn, President Emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and author of Leadership Makes a Difference, Lamar Alexander in K-12 Education which is available now at educationnext.org. Checker, thanks for being part of the podcast. Great pleasure. Nice to see you, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.